I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular, Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother, Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young. But had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. What you just heard was the opening narration done by John Laroquette for Toby Hooper's seminal 1974 cult classic, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. During the Halloween season, I had a chance to speak with Martin Harris, who provides a rather interesting new angle on this film in his book, Leatherface vs. Tricky Dick, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre as Political Satire, available now from Head Press. Now I know what you're saying. Oh, that's just crazy, JG. That's crazy. What could a movie about a chainsaw-wielding maniac possibly have to do with Richard Nixon? Well, the thing is, if you view Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre within the context of the era from which it came, you can definitely find a certain resonance between the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the scandal of Watergate. And indeed, Hooper himself would allude to this in interviews about the film. I was initially trying to get this interview out before Halloween, but alas, plans do not always pan out the way we expect them to, so consider it a Halloween hangover episode of the show. And with that being said, let's get right to the conversation with Martin Harris, author of Leatherface vs. Tricky Dick, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre as Political Satire. Hey, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist Muhammad. 
As time passes, Dill slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. Welcome to Parallax Views. Martin Harris, author of Leatherface vs. Tricky Dick, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as Political Satire. How are you doing today, Martin? Great. Thanks for having me on, JG. I feel like this was uh, the perfect book to discuss on my show because I'm a fan of both uh, politics and history and also uh, horror movies. So I got to ask, what led to you writing a book about both Watergate and the immortal uh, raw classic Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Yeah, we have that in common. We're both interested in politics and horror movies. And it's kind of a long story. I have kind of a background. I'm an English PhD. I did a lot of kind of uh, work with literature and kind of in the, in the sort of normal realm of what English professors tend to do. But then I was always working on uh, horror films and I wrote some articles. Actually, this is dating back about 20 years about certain horror films, always having the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as one of my favorites and one that I always thought about maybe writing about someday, although I wasn't sure what I was going to say. And then on the other side, I had this other interest in politics and, in fact, in poker. And I ended up writing a lot about poker. I wrote a book about poker, and that got me interested in the history of poker and the presidents who played poker. And Richard Nixon was a big poker player. So that kind of led to another obsession of sorts with Richard Nixon. And I read everything I could and, you know, studied Nixon and Watergate. I'm a child of the 70s. So I was always aware of Nixon growing up. And he was actually this villainous character in American politics, always referred to that way. Um, and then as I got into studying uh, uh, Nixon's life and his career more and more and the Watergate scandal, at some point I saw these parallels between Watergate and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the most uh, prominent being the coincidence of when they both took place or were created. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre being conceived, written, shot, edited, produced over that period from the end of 72 to October 74 when the film premiered. And that almost coincides with the Watergate scandal, which sort of began in the summer of 72 and ended with Nixon resigning in August 74. And so that encouraged me, and as did statements by Toby Hooper and his co-writer, uh, Kim Henkel, and others about the film having political intentions or some messaging um, being incorporated in the film, that encouraged me to explore the connections and that's what kind of ultimately ended up with this book. Now, I wanna note something right off the bat. This book isn't exactly saying, hey, this is the one definitive interpretation of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So maybe explain uh, 
what you try to do with the book, uh, the influence of, uh, say, Chuck Klosterman on your approach to things, maybe how you were being a bit tongue in cheek at certain points. Yeah, I'm glad that you noticed that and that uh, you're pointing that out, because that is certainly the case. And I try to make that clear in the introduction. Um, one of the things with a movie like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is so much has been said about it and, you know, every angle has been explored. What new can we do with, with the movie? And I realized that this angle, this idea that it, the movie is somehow commenting on the Watergate scandal, that it has some sort of critical message it wants to deliver about Richard Nixon and his administration. Um, that had been noticed by others, but maybe not explored in quite such detail before. And so I talk about sort of, you know, that being a legitimate way of looking at the film, but I also make it very clear that it's a narrow way of looking at the film. It's definitely not the only way. Um, and then I even sort of allow myself to go down certain roads and take some digressions and talk about things that have to do with politics of the day, kind of to fill in the broader context for the the film and its possible messaging uh, and to give the reader a better idea of kind of what's going on when the first audiences were watching this movie in late 74, 75, you know, what, what is foremost in their minds. Um, and so I try to make that clear uh, early on. And, and again, I'm kind of inspired by Toby Hooper, who I think often also had his tongue in cheek, even when he talked about the film being inspired by Watergate. I mean, I think he meant that. And he, he literally said that, that's one of my epigraphs. And of course I'm using that, I'm leaning on that pretty hard uh, in the book. Um, but I think he also is, is aware that people will read things into the movie that maybe they didn't necessarily think of in a concrete way beforehand. And he's encouraging of that. That's the way I always have taken Hooper's statements about this movie and other movies that he made. And so that's kind of where I go. And I, I hope that the reader gets that sense too and doesn't get you know, angry that, you know, I'm not talking about other meanings of the film, although I try to incorporate some other interpretations along the way too. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Toby Hooper being somewhat tongue in cheek about some of his statements with the film because, and we'll get into the Watergate aspect in a minute here, but I've always found it interesting. I think there's a real disconnect between how people reacted to the film when it initially came out. You know, people like Roger Ebert would say, oh, this was a very technically well-made film, but this film really has no reason for existing. It's horrible mm -hmm. and grotesque. Uh, and, you know, this constant talk of uh, this is just a, a mean-spirited uh, little horror film. I mean, I watch it, you know, and I, I can see that there is, there's a lot of dark comedy in it. And I think people have noticed that years later, but, Back then, I think people missed it. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think that the film, it's one of those, and you know, I'm sure that anyone listening to this podcast has probably seen the film at least once. Um, but if you haven't, it, it's the kind of film that is impossible to watch for the first time without having a kind of visceral reaction to it. It's a very effective horror film and it's grisly in certain respects and the terror and the horror that the characters feel. It's hard not to feel that kind of tension as you're watching it. And I think that experience, it kind of overwhelms people. This is true of a lot of horror movies, I think, that have deeper meanings, that it's kind of hard to get to those, meeting, those meanings on a first watch. 
And sometimes that first watch, it just overwhelms any other meanings. And so those first critics like Ebert, you mentioned, and there's some others, I quote them at the beginning of the book where um, they, uh, they can't, they actually come down on that. Uh, they're very sort of adamant in saying that the film doesn't have any sort of deeper meaning, that it's all kind of a surface level experience, all just manipulating your emotions and they can't really get past that. And I think that's why it's because the film is so effective. And, in, and I, and that's the primary, that was the primary intention. I'm sure of it. Uh, of the filmmakers was to create a film that just scared the heck out of viewers and was effective in that way. And then the other kinds of messaging maybe were secondary to that purpose. And they were very successful with that primary purpose. And, but that kind of got in the way and interfered and created some, some static when it came to people actually getting beneath the surface. And so it's also such a well-made film and, and an effective film that I think it's encouraged a lot of people to watch it more than once. And when you get into those multiple uh, viewings, that's when you start to realize there's humor in it, as you mentioned, and, and this other kind of- Well, I was gonna uh, say the original title was going to be, uh, they were gonna call it Head Cheese which I, yeah, I think yeah. shows you the darkly comical sort of vibe that maybe uh, Hooper and Henkel had in mind at times. Yeah, for sure. That, I mean, that kind of, I mean, yeah, even to entertain that for a, for a title, I mean, you can sort of see that, you know, these were, these were uh, relatively new filmmakers. I mean, they had experience and Hooper and Henkel had made one film before, Eggshells, which was a very experimental film. Can you talk and, a little bit about that film? Because I think it sheds light on, an entire generation. You know, I think it shows you the generation that Henkel and Hooper came from. Yeah, that's a great film for people who are really interested in Texas Chainsaw and kind of the thinking behind it and the artistry and the, you know, how it's put together. I highly recommend Eggshells, which was made a few years earlier, which didn't really get a big audience. There is, it's now available on DVD and you can, you can, it's fairly accessible. Um, but it's a very unusual movie and I talk about it in the book and I liken it to things like if you've seen Easy Rider or these other kind of experimental indie films of that era, talking late 60s, early 70s. It's um, of that counterculture hippie sort of generation of filmmakers. Yeah, exactly. And so, and it's commenting on that generation. It's commenting on those aspirations, you know, with the you know, the young people uh, of the day, the protests and the, you know, with the, the hippie generation and so forth, it's got a kind of critical distance and it's commenting on, you know, just how effective that approach is to making change or making the world a better place. And you have characters in the film who are younger characters who seem kind of ineffectual and unable to really change things. And there's a lot of just really neat, wild, experimental filmmaking uh, with all kinds of, I, I sort of go through the list actually in the introduction, but you'll see evidence of that, that stylistic sort of approach comes through in Texas Chainsaw occasionally uh, at the beginning and the end of the film, especially um, where you, you can see sort of where that's coming from. And that it's not just out of nowhere that these filmmakers had these tools in their uh, sort of cinematic toolbox. I think the other thing about Texas Chainsaw, and I don't know if you'd uh, agree or disagree with this. I think even if you have a very surface level reading of the film, I, I think it's very much a product of the political turmoil of its time. E even when you take out Watergate, I mean, 
a lot of the movie is a reflection of, I mean, there are all kinds of shortages, the gas shortages, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, uh, labor, uh, laborers being out of jobs. Do you think that's all sort of really there on the surface? And could you comment on maybe the political times, uh, that Chainsaw was made in? Yeah, it's definitely a product of its era. Um, we have sort of all kinds of things sort of bubbling under the surface of this film um, that I think anyone who's watched other films from that era, anyone who lived through that era, anyone who's familiar with kind of some of the issues that are in play are aware that these things are part of the context of this story. And so something like the gas shortage that you talked about, and it's kind of economic hardship and it's a period of inflation and there's all kinds of um, difficulties that seem to be sort of surrounding the story. And these, there are these little references in the film. It's incredibly subtle at times, but you know, even like the, the old man is, is uh, putting Sally in the truck and is about to drive her back to the, to the house. And then he remembers to go back and turn off the light. And he makes a comment about the cost of electricity, <laughs> which was skyrocketing actually at that time. And so these kinds of things, like they're just sort of part of the, the atmosphere of the film and it's very effectively presented and makes the story seem all the more realistic because it's situated in, in all of these real life issues, but things like, you know, obviously, you know, the, uh, the Vietnam war is, sort of officially coming to a close, but it's still sort of, you know, had this profound effect on American trust and government and, you know, the, what the president is saying and these kinds of things, um, these economic hardships, the gas shortage. Um, and then there's other sort of, you know, tensions and things having to do with, the, you know, the, you could talk about sort of, rural versus urban divides, all sorts of, you know, city versus country, these tensions that are, are kind of present and there in the, in the film, either uh, on the surface or maybe off to the edge somewhere. Well, it's, it's um, one of the even, prototypical, yeah. uh, it's one of the prototypical uh, look at the, what will happen if you take a wrong turn in the Bible belt or the deep South type movies. Mm -hmm. Right. And Texas, yeah, Texas itself is sort of, represented as this dangerous place. And it has, of course, there's all sorts of historical resonance there. Um, and I talk about that in the book. And that's, a, that's actually a good example where I talk about Nixon and the Republicans and this Southern strategy and exploiting those fears and exploiting, you know, basically uh, prejudices that people held um, in, for political gain. And comparing that to what the filmmakers are doing with that same sort of, you know, they're kind of exploiting that as well. And they're sort of using that as a, as a, an occasion for uh, creating set, putting these characters who are actually, you know, they, they aren't necessarily like Northerners or anything. They're, they're from Texas in the screenplay. They're, they're all from Houston. Um, but in the movie, that's not really specified, but they're not, like completely alien to this landscape, but they're picked up out of their comfortable place and put into a very uh, strange and unknown place when they go to visit uh, Sally's grandfather's grave and find themselves in this weird place where um, all these strange characters are running around with leather faces and things like that. Yeah, and I was just gonna say, the, the thing that always stood out to me is, uh, you know, the, the kids, that are on this sort of road trip and, and visiting their, their 
uh, family's house and whatnot. You know, I think a case can be made that it it brings to mind a lot of kids uh, going off into Vietnam, not going, not knowing what they're really getting into. But with regards to the Watergate connection, I I guess where I want to start with that is, you know, I think my generation in particular may be a little bit removed from Watergate. And I like how you start out the book uh, talking about Irving Kristol and his view of Watergate. Could you discuss that a little bit and maybe uh, let my listeners know who Irving Kristol was? Yeah. So in that introduction, I try to present both Watergate and the film and the historical context for both. And one of the ideas that I uh, talk about uh, most explicitly there is how both Watergate and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre were experienced as like nightmares. Um, the film is in a way trying to create a nightmare and put the viewer through the experience of a kind of nightmare. And Watergate was the same way. That's something that's kind of hard maybe to appreciate from this distance, this historical distance. But from the time that the first stories of these break-ins at the Democratic National Committee headquarters, and then the idea of actually this huge conspiracy and cover-up that really didn't start to come out until early 73. And then in May 73, uh, Irving Kristol wrote this editorial um, in which he, it was titled The Nightmare of Watergate. And it was actually published on the day that the Senate Watergate committee hearings were about to begin. And this was when things were really exploding and all of America would suddenly become aware of this very complicated, weird story involving their government and the president and his men. And they were acting in these crazy, irrational ways and doing all of these things that Crystal in his editorial, and he was a he was a Nixon supporter. He was a conservative. He was, you know, someone who otherwise would, you know, would not be writing things as would not normally be writing things as critical of of the administration. He found all of this completely frightening. Um, and what he said was the thing that was most frightening about it was the fact that it just seemed so irrational that the, you know, what was going on and the idea of sort of breaking in and and these cover-ups and so on and and all the characters involved um it's more than it it, he's looking at it as being it's not just that you know our government did something wrong or or figures mm -hmm. in our government did something bad it's that it all makes no sense that they're doing this yeah yeah and uh, and right there on the eve of the beginning of the senate watergate committee hearings we're things would begin to be spelled out and a lot of these fears would be realized that yes, you know, these things were happening. Um, it was the, a most confusing time. And that's how a lot of Watergate was experienced. And indeed that's what Crystal is, is talking about. Um, and so I feel like that the film kind of captures, I mean, the film is purposely trying to create that feeling and that mood uh, in an audience. Um, but it's coming out of this period. The film, this is, you know, we're talking about when the film was being written. It was shot later that summer of 73. Um, and the Watergate hearings were playing out on television on the days that they were shooting this film and, and, and then editing it later. Um, that it really captures that sense of unease. What's happening? Where is this all heading? Um, and so it reflects it very directly. And so I felt like that was a good way to start the, the comparison was to talk about the nightmare of 
Watergate and the nightmare that the film is presenting. I mean, I, I think even Gerald Ford, who came right after Nixon, after Nixon resigned, I think he called it our national nightmare. That's right. Yeah. So there's lots of uncanny things like that. Lots of vocabulary that and actual literal words people use where he's Gerald Ford when on August the 9th, when he was his first day in office and was addressing the country for the first time, he said, we've come to the end of our long national nightmare. <laughs> and in the book, and I think others have pointed this out many times, that that's not necessarily true that, you know, Nixon later being pardoned by Ford helped uh, continue that sense of unease and distrust uh, after Nixon was out of office. I was also going to add to that. I mean, you even had well, one thing I think is interesting. You mentioned Hunter S. Thompson a few times throughout the book. And, you know, one thing I think people miss about Thompson's writing or something that they don't get is he often invokes the language of, uh, you know, the horrific and uh, the grotesque, especially during the Nixon era. So it, it's kind of interesting because I think uh, in a way you had a lot of journalists and writers invoking uh, the language of horror uh, to describe the Nixon era. And I think in a way you have Hooper uh, sort of satirizing it on the other end. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, Hunter S. Thompson was one of those who was willing to go there with his commentary and to call Nixon a monster and a villain and basically a, like someone out of a horror show. Um, and other, I talk about a lot of other satire in the book, comedy records and, you know, other the documentary Millhouse. Yeah, yeah. Um, Emil D'Antonio's great documentary um, that um, came out contemporaneous with Nixon's administration and, and made those connections and presented him as being like a horror character. There's a National Lampoon skit where he's... Uh, uh, they sort of relate him to the movie The Exorcist and how Nixon has to get an exorcism. And, and the, these kinds of things came up all the time. I was going to uh, say, it's not just Nixon, era. though. I mean, when I was reading the book, I was thinking about G. Gordon Liddy. And I, I was just thinking to myself, he would have been great in like one of these horror movies as like a villain because Liddy seemed to have been actually, you know, kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I mean even after... Watergate, you know, I, I remember uh, watching a video once where he was putting his hand over a fire and saying, right, you right. know, everything is mined over a matter. You have to pretend there is no pain. You know, all these characters are sort of reminiscent of the sort of cannibal plan we find in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in some ways. Oh, absolutely. And G, G. Gordon Liddy is just, uh, he's, I think he kind of thought of himself as being in a kind of weird adventure thriller kind of story a lot of the times and if you read his autobiography he kind of talks about himself that way and yeah they that's you know to me that's Watergate is such a fascinating story and there's so many characters like that that you just your jaw drops at thinking about how did this how did these people get so close to you know the seat of power and and have that kind of influence and Lydia is certainly one of them but yeah there's you know the language of Watergate all these things like they described the, you know, the term White House horrors came out during those Senate Watergate hearings and became kind of a catch-all phrase for all of the different acts of criminality and corruption and, and so forth. And, you know, things like- There's also the Saturday Night Massacre, if you could yeah. describe that. Is that where you were going? 
Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, these kinds of things for me, it was, you know, it was fun to sort of explore those things. And I think it helped, helped me kind of justify this comparison that here we have this, you know, political story that's described as a horror story, White House horrors, the nightmare of Watergate. And then the Saturday Night Massacre is a kind of signal moment in the Watergate scandal where after, you know, after that occurred, uh, serious talk of impeachment followed. That was the, in October 1973, where Nixon was unhappy with the pressure that the Watergate special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, was placing on the administration and wanting to get these tapes and make them uh, available. And the, uh, the White House was resisting that. And so he finally um, snapped and Nixon uh, ordered his attorney general, Elliot Richardson, to fire Archibald Cox. Richardson refused and resigned. The assistant attorney general also resigned and only the next man down the line uh, actually executed the, uh, the plan. But after that, so all these people were wiped out and it was described in the press as, you know, as a, this massacre, there was blood all over the floor, you know, all these key figures were being removed. And the idea of an abuse of power was suddenly, um, you know, very relevant. And the idea of impeaching Nixon followed that. But yeah, a massacre, um, that's a word that uh, I point out in the book that it's probably a coincidence, you know, that the movie wasn't called the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because of the Saturday Night Massacre. That's kind of a, a coincidence. But that word has a political um, valence anyway. Um, even even the name massacre. of the company that makes the movie vortex uh would you argue that that has sort of a, a a sort of valence to everything going on yeah i talk about that at the very beginning as i try to set up the making of the film and give the reader an idea kind of the circumstances that the film was made in and i refer to henkel and hooper's production company what that they created this vortex inc um and the i and that's another place where i kind of give myself a little bit of uh, liberty and draw some references in order to kind of help fill in the background of both stories, the film and the scandal, and the idea of a vortex and this, you know, sort of black hole where things are going down. Um, Watergate was actually described coincidentally as a, as a kind of vortex, this, you know, horrible, um, complicated situation where everything seemed to be spiraling downward. Right. And every turn is just another wrong turn, which I mean, that's basically what Texas Chainsaw is. You know, in, in some ways, I, I, you know, I don't want to overstate this because people will think I'm saying it's complete comedy, but they're, they're almost it's like a, a weird Scooby Doo vibe to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> at some points. It sounds really weird, but you have points where you have the main girl, Sally, running from Leatherface only to end up back at Leatherface's house. And, you know, it, there is this sort of, I think the horror folding in on itself is how you put it in the book. Yeah, the way she keeps circling back, this is the nightmare quality of the film where she goes back to the house, she goes back to the gas station, um, she goes through the window twice. <laughs> um, you know, these things sort of repeat and there's a circular feeling to it. And the Watergate story played out in a similar way where they kept going back over and back over. and you know, the, all the different details and there was, there seemed to be no escape out of this. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. Before we continue 
our conversation on this edition of Parallax Views, I want to notify California listeners of the program about one of our sponsors, the Therapy Practice of Alexander Yu. Yu is an experienced teletherapist since 2008, and he goes by the motto, Flow, Adapt, Change, as Lao Tzu would say. And he wants to accompany you on your journey of self-improvement. Now, again, this applies to California listeners of the program. Alexander is a licensed psychotherapist and teletherapist. And if you'd like his services, then please contact him at Alexander U. That's Alexander U Y O O dot com. And he can be reached by email at therapy at Alexander dot com or by phone at three two three eight three four nine eight two eight. That's three two three eight three four nine eight two eight. This is only available once again to my California listeners, but if you need anything related to therapy needs, please be sure to contact our sponsor, Alexander Yu. I want to get into your your book is essentially a minute by minute uh, examination of the film and sort of it's almost it almost acts like a an alternate audio commentary to the film i could mm-hmm. imagine you speaking uh while watching the film saying oh and this is how you could relate it to this um one of the things though that really sticks out about the movie is the opening right because you have all those weird sounds and you're seeing flashes of of uh dead bodies corpses and whatnot and you sort of relate that uh, to the crime of Watergate in an interesting way where we only see glimpses of it at first, but upon further investigation, you know, there's a bigger crime afoot. And also I, I think the way you look at the narration at the beginning done by John Larroquette uh, is very interesting. So could you talk about those two things? Yeah, I'm glad that you said that about it seeming like an audio commentary. I've actually heard that from others. And there's, as you say, it's a minute by minute sort of analysis of the film. I give timestamps and everything. And so I do, you know, that's kind of an effect that I was going for, that you're reading this and it's almost like you can sort of see the movie, especially if you've seen it a few times, and you can sort of see it playing out as you're reading. And, and here's some commentary going along with it, pointing out all these political significances um and yeah so the early the early part of the film we have these kind of weird images and sounds that we don't really know what they are and we don't really are ever told what they are but we kind of can put it together later that we're looking at the hitchhiker unearthing corpses and taking pictures we see that he's got a camera later on um and so there's this flash photography going on and these weird sort of things that for Hooper, when he talked about this opening, he was 
referring to kind of giving the reader, giving the viewer um, sort of pieces that could later be put together as the puzzle sort of came into to focus. Um, and so I, you know, there I'm at the beginning of my book, I'm trying to give the reader, I sort of felt an obligation to inform the reader a bit about the Watergate scandal and the history and sort of what happened, not assuming that every reader will know all the complicated details of it. So I go back to that break-in. There were actually a couple of break-ins, but the one that resulted in the arrests on June 17th, 1972 at the Democratic National Committee headquarters and these burglars in the offices taking pictures in the dark <laughs> with flash photography um, trying to gather evidence on, on, you know, the Democrats to use in the upcoming election, um, that there's this kind of weird correspondence there, the flash photography in the dark, which doesn't really seem to mean much when we first encounter it. Those, when people were reading those newspaper stories about the arrests in June 72, it just didn't seem to register, and it really wouldn't all the way through the November election and into 73 before people realized, wait a minute, this is part of a much bigger story. There's a lot of other, these are small crimes happening, but it's part of a conspiracy of much larger crimes happening. And, and I, I think if you're- scandal and true in the movie. I was gonna say, and I, I, I would say that like, if you're picking up on these things back when Texas Chancellor comes out in 74, even if they aren't intentional, you know, it sort of creates a resonance for the whole era. Yeah, I think so. And then, and, you know, you can look at other movies of that period and a lot of them seem to sort of evoke that same kind of uneasiness and that there's conspiracies and things sort of surrounding uh, the stories. There are forces in play that we're not aware of and that we're only sort of, it takes a lot of work to piece together and realize sort of what's influencing how the country runs, where power is, and you know what our fate is going to be. Now, the opening narration that I mentioned with Lyricette, how would you relate that to the Watergate era? Because I, I think uh, it, it may be the most clear points where you can sort of see parallels. Yeah, so the uh, people who've seen the film, you're, you remember the opening crawl that suggests that the film is a true story and it presents this, you know, it kind of introduces the idea of these five youths on an idyllic summer, you know, trip and that they find themselves in this nightmare. And it ends with this, you know, referring to it as one of the most bizarre crimes in the history in American history. And it kind of sets up, you know, it gives, it's one of many sort of elements early in the film that gives us this sense of foreboding and, you know, bad things are going to happen. And so we're, we're waiting for that from the very beginning. Um, that opening crawl, uh, the way Hooper talked about it and about the marketing of the film, which is much more explicit about the idea of what happened was real, um, you know, that it kind of was part of the, 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 the poster and the advertising that this was a true story, um, which wasn't the case. And Hooper actually sort of made a cheeky reference where he suggested that they put in this sort of idea in part 
as a reflection on the government lying to us all the time and saying things that were true that weren't really true, that he actually made that connection with reference to that opening crawl. Um, but it does sort of, um, it situates, I, it, it works to situate the film along with those other things that we were talking about earlier in, in a very realistic way where you're experiencing it. And even though it's not a true story, it seems like it could be true and it's very believable. Um, and so that crawl has a, a, a pretty significant, um, it's significant, it's a significant part of the strategy of, of the way that the story is presented. So in terms of Richard Nixon himself, uh, you know, the title is Leatherface versus Tricky Dick, but my immediate, you know, first thought when I was reading the book was, I can see a lot of comparisons that could be drawn between uh, the character of the old man played by Jim Sadow for people that don't know. And he, he's sort of the, well, he's technically the, the brothers. They're all brothers in this movie, the, uh, the cannibal clan, but he sort of acts as the de facto patriarch, but he's a very weird character because on one hand, he, he seems like the nice guy that wants to help uh, Sally at times, but he also has this really dark side and he's sort of, I mean, he's hyper paranoid and, and sort of a, for lack of a better term, schizo. Um, do, are there parallels you can draw between that and, and Nixon? Because I think Nixon was a very uh, paranoid person. And I mean, for people close to him, he could seem like a nice guy. I mean, even Pat Buchanan would call him uh, the old man, as you point out in the book. So to his mm -hmm. friends, he could be very nice. But at the same time, he has this insane paranoid streak. Yeah, so in the in the book, I try to I'm, I'm I try to be careful early on and point out that I'm not trying to trace this very detailed and elaborate allegory, and say that like events in the film exactly connect with events in real life and the Watergate scandal, and that characters um, necessarily aren't always sort of equated with real life characters. But you As can it see happens, it mirroring the sort of madness of the political time. Absolutely. And then I do, uh, but I do suggest that we have, uh, you know, the, these villains are meant to be associated with Nixon and his men and the administration and that the, 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 the victims in the story are the American public, you could say, and that so they're terrorizing uh, the the poor youths in the film, but that idea is present. And then, as the as I get into the book, and especially later in the book, I end up sort of putting Leatherface with Nixon quite a bit and matching those characters um, because of things that are suggested by the film. But that there's a lot to that as well. What you just said about the old man, the cook, being like Nixon, um, and I get into some of the ways that they are uh, similar. There was a great book that came out as I was working on this book. Um, uh, it came out a year or two bef before by Joseph Lanza about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And he actually makes a lot of that comparison between the cook, the cook and the crook he talks about um, and how they are uh, similar characters, both and in, they kind of physically resemble one another, that, that the old man kind of looks a little bit like Nixon. He probably, more than anybody else in the film, looks like Nixon. And that he's there sort of 
trying to hold it together. He's trying to keep the household together. He can't really control Leatherface and the hitchhiker. And in, in a similar way, Nixon couldn't control those around him, you know, like G. Gordon Liddy and, and these others um, who are kind of making things worse for, for the whole administration and for Nixon in particular. And so there's a lot there. There's, you could definitely say that um, the old man, the cook character is, uh, in some ways, a character that exploits some of these ideas and which is meant to evoke Nixon in certain ways. In the book, I end up, you know, Leatherface ends up being my, my Nixon in a way, the one who's committing all the, the murders and committing all the crimes and the others are trying to help cover up uh, for them. Uh, and then there are other connections that I make uh, between Leatherface and, and Tricky Dick, so... I want to get into those connections, but could you, so where does the hitchhiker fit into your book? Because he's actually, you know, I know everyone loves the Leatherface character, but I've always been interested in these uh, other members of the family within the Texas Chainsaw movies, because usually they have more dialogue and they're a bit more, I, I guess, uh, I don't want to say colorful because Leatherface, I guess, is a, a strangely colorful character, but he's more of the Frankenstein's monster uh, that doesn't have any dialogue. Where would you place uh, this really creepy character of uh, the hitchhiker within all of this? Yeah, the hitchhiker, I would position he's a co-conspirator. He's one of those who helps with the cover up and so forth. He's um, facilitating these, uh, the, helping facilitate the crimes, help, helping cover up Leatherface's crimes. Um, He's a great character, like you say, because he and the old man, they speak, they have lines and they sort of help clue us in to the thinking of the family. He's not as articulate as the old man, but he says some really interesting things, especially in the van there where he's talking about the old way and the new way where, you know, he's complaining about the slaughterhouse and the new methods replacing the old ways of, of killing the cattle and, and putting people out of jobs. And so he kind of establishes that idea early on that the family represents the old way, that it's kind of a, you know, they're defending this, you know, in a weird sense. And that what they do, in fact, is caused by those changes. Um, they have to eke out a living. They have to put food on the table. And I mean that figuratively and literally in a sense um, by what they're doing um, and the crimes that they're committing, that all of that is, is uh, caused by the context and caused by the, the economic realities. Um, but he's, yeah, the hitchhiker definitely um, is part of that. And then the, he has, you know, his, his exchanges with the old man, for instance, when they bring Sally back, they kind of a, evoke the language of co-conspirators and people who are covering up things. And, and so he plays that role and is, is pretty important in the film as well. Yeah. I was going to say, it kind of reminds me of like, I, I think G Gordon Liddy right up until the point he died was like, I, I you know, he thought he was the hero. He thought he was doing good by mm -hmm. helping Nixon out. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, I would kind of identify that's, you know, I, I sort of think of him that way. And I kind of think of, the old man, uh, like I say, he's like Nixon, but he's also like Nixon's man. He's also like the the conspirators. He's almost are, like E. Howard Hunt up. and Sturgis and all these other, yeah. Yeah, and there's, yeah, there's so many great characters. And then, so Leatherface there at, at the at the heart of it all, 
uh, committing all the crimes. Um, I guess sort of the way that he, I identify him with Nixon probably most um, significantly is the idea of the mask. Um, and I talk about this late in the book where there's a, actually, I think it's the longest section in the book called Leatherface and the Nixon mask. And the idea of having this killer at this heart of the movie who wears these masks that are made from victims, made from other humans. Um, Leatherface dons these masks. There are multiple masks that he puts on and, and adopts kind of different roles according to the mask that he's wearing. And I get into the actual Nixon mask, the, the, the famous Nixon mask that we all know um, that has become kind of a, a comic symbol in a way um, now, but at the time it, it first sort of emerged as Nixon first entered office in 69. And there were people wearing these Nixon masks at the inauguration. And it was a very, it was meant to be a very critical symbolic Sort of, it's the uh, mask with like a giant nose on it and that, right? Yeah, and the eyebrows, and it kind of evolves over time. At that inauguration, the first masks, there were the details weren't there. It was kind of all white and very spooky looking. I have a picture in it in the book, a picture of it in the book. Um, but the idea was that Nixon was this entirely political creature, that there was nothing behind, you know, the face, you know, that he was just completely made up of. Um, whatever it was that enabled him to remain in power and, and that his positions, that he didn't have any ideology of his own, but he just adopted whatever he needed to in order to remain in favor and, and continue to be elected into office. Um, and that was what the mask was, that it was this commentary on the idea that Richard Nixon wore a mask himself, that he actually was wearing a mask um, in, in life and that there was nothing behind Nixon. And so that's where I start to talk about him being, Leatherface being like Nixon, that they're both characters where there's no, kind of nothing underneath and it's just this mask that they're wearing. Uh, and the mask is, in Leatherface's case, it's literally taken from, from his victims. And I'm saying that Nixon in a similar way, that was the criticism that was being levied towards Nixon uh, at the time, that he was similarly you know, just whatever, he, he took his image from whatever, you know, from others that he took it from uh, those who he, whose support he sought. So there's also the issue, is there anything else we can say about parallels between Nixon and Leatherface? I think you also mentioned the whole thing with, I, I mean, you have that, I mean, most people, when they think of Leatherface now, they're thinking of him in the, uh, you know, the, the slaughterhouse outfit, but he also wears a suit mm -hmm. at one point. Yeah. Yeah, I have. I, and so I, I, I do draw attention to that where he, yeah, he's, he's dressed for work, right? He's, he's at home and he's wearing this apron, but he wears a tie, Leatherface does. He's always, he's got that tie on. And then later on, he's at dinner, he's wearing a suit and tie. And that formality of dress, I actually liken to Nixon as well, because that was something Nixon was famous for, was always wearing a suit, always wearing a tie, no matter what he's doing. And there's all these funny pictures of him bowling or walking on the beach or doing all these things where he's still wearing a tie uh, and this formality, which for Nixon, you know, he talked about it. He was just more comfortable when he dressed that way, but it also sort of connected him with the older generation. And, you know, he was very different from those, 
you know, the hippies and, and those who weren't. We're going uh, very, back to the old ways and the new ways. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's what, where Nixon was coming from. And that's where Leatherface is as part of that family. They're coming from that, that time as well. Um, but I do, I, you know, I have some fun there. Um, uh, it's a section called Killer in a Tie, um, where I'm describing the first murder and how we get this character suddenly appears and he's wearing a tie, which seems really incongruous. But uh, again, it's an example of that humor that you were mentioning. It's interesting too, because I mean, beyond Watergate, I think people forget, I, I mean, I, I know a lot of people have talked about the the Trump presidency and, and you know, uh, concerns that it was very authoritarian. But I mean, we had those same concerns uh, about Nixon in a lot of ways. I mean, Nixon basically defined himself as the law and order president. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways you could argue law and order meant I'm going to take down these dirty hippies and, you know, the, these civil rights movement people that are making trouble for uh, my Southern constituents and, and whatnot. And, and really in a way, uh, you know, I, I look at something like um, uh, the Kent state massacre. I mean, for me, that was like a cinder block being dropped on uh, the whole anti-war movement of the time. And that was happening under, uh, you know, Nixon's watch. And w- what I think is interesting is uh, you have these young kids at the heart of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, who basically are hippies. I mean, they're they're into astrology and all this other stuff, and they're sort of uh, destroyed by uh, these people who believe in the old ways, who are sort of uh, conservative and and reactionary. Yeah. So Nixon is. Um, it's true, and we've heard those things again. And that's one of the things. You know, I started. Uh, I, I was writing this book. I teach a class on Nixon in. Uh, at UNC Charlotte in the American Studies program. And I started teaching it before Trump came into office. And then I continued to teach it. I'm teaching it actually this semester as well. And so a lot of the, the issues and the ideas um, that were important that come up in that class and come up in any kind of discussion of Nixon, they were revisited upon us during uh, Trump's presidency. And so we heard those things. We heard law and order, which was kind of a slogan um, during Nixon's presidency that he and his vice president, especially Spiro Agnew, used a lot. And the idea um, being that we are the, you know, coming into office at such a volatile period in American history, the idea that we're going to come in and we're going to reestablish kind of order and kind of take things back to the way they were prior to all of this unrest um, that we're experiencing. Which, which is being caused by, you know, the younger generation that doesn't understand how things work for the older generation. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And the idea of, um, you know, uh, protesting itself becoming you know, something that needed to be suppressed, you know, free speech was, it just needed to be um, clamped down and it, that it was the cause of the problem that the Vietnam war wasn't um, the problem. It was the protests about the Vietnam war that were the, were the problem that needed to be dealt with. And so all of that, you know, all of that evolved ultimately into what became Watergate and the, and the scandal that it was all motivated by. Not, not just Watergate. I mean, you also had like, I mean, people forget that the same people who did Watergate were the same people that broke into the whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office to try to steal his psychiatric records. I mean, they were I mean, they, they, I always found the Ellsberg story really fascinating because uh, like what the villains do in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 
it's it's a literal violation of a human being, right? I mean, they're they're trying to violate you know the the basic dignity and rights of Ellsberg in the way that you know ultimately the villains in Chainsaw violate in a very literal way uh, the young cast. Yes, absolutely. And so there's kind of a, and it, you know, we can talk about what happens in the movie. It's sort of an exaggerated version, uh, an extremely, you know, hyperbolic version of, of the kind of control and, and uh, destruction, destructive, you know, imp- destructiveness that the government was imposing or trying to impose um, in its kind of draconian uh, approach uh, to governing. Uh, and so, yeah, Nixon and, and, you know, the presidency, Nixon, uh, during his time in office, the, the power of the presidency was growing. Um, and then he, he tried to push it even further and succeeded in some respects, but ultimately failed. But presidents since him have, have succeeded in doing that. And so it continues to, to grow to the point where we have, you know, during Trump's presidency, we saw sort of how the, you know, Congress could only do so much um, that the other branches of government, they couldn't necessarily uh, control uh, the president. And so it's, a, it's definitely a worrisome thing. And it all goes back to, to Nixon and, and, and before even uh, this growth of the power of the presidency. There's just a few more things I wanted to touch upon. One that I actually forgot about was uh, you mentioned astrology in the book a few times. And I didn't know that the original title, one of the original titles bandied about for Texas Chainsaw was, I think, Saturn in Retrograde. And I guess Saturn (laughs) in Retrograde is actually mentioned in the movie. Could you discuss that? Because I found it oddly resonant with the political times that you're speaking of. Yeah, I I loved that section of the book and, and those areas where I was, you know, somewhat aware of it, but I got to research and learn more about, uh, you know, the rise of astrology in the early 1970s and talk about it. We have the character Pam in the movie who's really into astrology and she, she's got her book and her magazine and she's reading others' horoscopes. And it's sort of on one level, it's just sort of a funny way to foreshadow all the terrible things that are about to happen in the movie. Um, but it was actually kind of more central to the, idea of the story uh, for Hooper and Henkel early on. And they, they had thought about, you know, this idea that it was, you know, what happens in the movie is being caused by the stars and solar flares and all. Well, it's being caused by something completely irrational, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's kind of, you know, all of that ends up sort of getting muted in the movie. uh, And those connections aren't really on the surface uh, in the film, but yeah. So Saturn in retrograde, um, I think, uh, was one of the titles, along with Head Cheese and Leatherface and, and others that were, were bandied about before they were able to settle on the much better uh, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre title. Um, but yeah, so I get to, at that moment, when she brings out the book and they talk about horoscopes and astrology, I talk about, you know, where that's coming from and how that you know, the importance of astrology at that time um, and its genuine influence. And of course, things like astrology become more popular during those periods when there's more uncertainty, economic, political, you know, all sorts of um, things 
that cause people to be unsure about the world. They, they turn to explanations uh, to help them, to help guide them. And astrology uh, was filling that role in the early 70s. It's kind of come back, you know, more recently uh, in a similar way. And it has become popular once again. But, um, you know, I talk about, you know, th there were, there was astrology had an influence in the Nixon White House in a weird way. Um, where his secretary, Rosemary Woods, was good friends with this Gene Dixon, who was the most, one of the most famous astrologers, kind of a celebrity astrologer of the day, who would tell Rosemary things, and then she would tell Nixon, <laughs> pass it along. Uh, and these things didn't necessarily affect policy, but they were kind of in, the president was hearing these things, and even had a meeting with Dixon one time, the astrologer. Well, I think, I, I think the whole idea of you know, oh, Saturn in retro or in Saturn in retrograde. And, you know, these references to astrology is, you know, uh, an omen of what's to come for the characters in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, this idea of a, an irrational cosmic horror sort of coming. Uh, I, I think it rings true with how Irving Crystal felt about the whole Watergate scandal. You know, this is this is complete irrationality overcoming our governance. And, you know, it, it's the ultimate horror, the ultimate nightmare. Uh, which sort of brings me around to the final thing I wanted to get at, and you brought it up a little bit earlier, but maybe as a literature professor, we should get into it a little bit more. You said that you're not trying to say that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is necessarily a political allegory of Watergate, a one-to-one, -one, but that it's more of a satire. So what, what would the difference be between uh, satirizing Watergate and being a political allegory of Watergate be? Yeah, those things can overlap. You can have a, uh, an allegory that is satirical, of course. Um, I, I talk about that in the introduction and I kind of make that distinction between allegory and satire that, and, uh, that I feel like by taking the approach of calling the film a satire, it means and enables me to talk about the commentary in a, in a much broader way and not, it doesn't necessarily have to be as specific where we have this kind of one-to-one -one correspondence between events and characters in the movie with the scandal. And so I talk about sat different kinds of satire. My background is actually, my PhD is 17th and 18th century British lit. And so this was kind of an excuse for me to bring some of that into this book where it maybe otherwise wouldn't really come up. But I quote like John Dryden, for instance, talking about satire and the different kinds of satire um, and the different uses of satire and how you can use humor and wit to comment in indirect ways on real life events, figures, issues of the day. Um, and so I think that that's the approach. I feel like... Um, Hooper and Henkel, that the filmmakers really had that in mind, this idea of um, making a critical commentary on Nixon, on Watergate, on politics of the day, on America, circa 1973, 1974. Well, it, I, I was um, just going to add, for me, the strongest thing you can say is, I, I think what Hooper and Henkel were tapping into is, you know, they're looking around saying, this is completely insane. Everything has gone haywire. I mean, whether it be the, the gas shortage or the, the Watergate scandal itself, it, it just seemed like complete uncertainty. Everything is haywire. There's no rationality in any of this. It, it, it seems apocalyptic. And I think 
unconsciously they they sort of tap well consciously and in some ways unconsciously they just tap into the resonance of a very uncertain time period that was the nixon presidency yeah absolutely and they take the approach that others other satirists of the period uh comedians uh take where it's they look at it and they say the best response here is to satirize it or to make a kind of commentary on it. What I'm suggesting is they make a film that's this complete horror show um, that relates to the horror show of the real life that they're experiencing. Um, and kind of it, the connection is that it exaggerates the situation in a way and localizes it and gives us these villains and victims that are kind of playing out or dramatizing this horror that we're living through <laughs> with this administration and the, the uncertainty that it's caused. Um, and has visited upon Americans. And so um, it's, you know, it's, it's like the Nixon mask. It's like, you know, think about the, the idea of the Nixon mask and whoever came up with that great mask. It's funny, you know, you look at it and it's just this exaggeration of Nixon, you know, big nose and it just looks ridiculous. And your first instinct is to laugh. And in some ways that's a first instinct where it's all we can do is laugh at this, you know, that or at least that that's, that's a helpful first step as we engage in a kind of critical commentary of it is to just show how absurd it is and to um, you know, create this kind of humorous version of it in order to explore the problems that we wanna investigate and criticize. So before closing out here, how would you place the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, not just within the context of Nixon, but within the context of other horror films that came out in the, I would say, late 60s, especially after the Kennedy assassination and, uh, you know, the 70s, maybe up till, you know, the, the late 70s, uh, because I feel like all the films of that time, all the really great horror films, like one you mentioned, Night of the Living Dead, uh, George Romero, uh, which is like the hometown hero movie for us in Pittsburgh here. Mm -hmm. I think those movies cannot be fully appreciated um, or at least not be fully understood without understanding that they're made within the context of a certain time period by very young people who are looking around them at Vietnam, at Watergate, and all of this, and saying this is complete madness. It's it's almost like they're reflecting or throwing out the, the rage and horror of their time in, in a creative and imaginative way. Um, it's almost like film is protest in some ways. Yes, all those films do. And, and Texas Chainsaw is very important in that sort of catalog of films, mostly made by independents and, and younger filmmakers. Well, they're films with a lot of rage in them. Yeah. Yeah. And we see, you know, the violence and, and, you know, the things that are depicted in the film kind of reflecting that, that rage. And it's one way to go. Not all people who made movies or who made art during that period uh, wrote novels, uh, took that approach, but these filmmakers did, and they had an influence going forward. You know, it's definitely, um, I think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre's influence is, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's the, you know, the, the technical mastery and the kind of the ability to create this atmosphere and the situation and these characters um, that were so effective um, in the way that they 
uh, pushed audiences and, and made audiences feel in certain ways. That influence was huge. Um, I think that the political messaging, I think we see that in other films as well that came afterwards, um, but it probably wasn't as great. Um, not immediately, certainly, but maybe, maybe eventually um, the idea that you can make a film like this, you can make a horror story um, and present these situations in order to comment on real life horrors. Um, it's a really a supreme example of it. And I think uh, is influential um, or should be influential to anyone who aspires to make similar statements in horror films. And I guess on a final note here, what do you hope that listeners get out of Leatherface versus Tricky Dick? And maybe you could also comment, you said uh, earlier about Toby Hooper's comments saying that it's sort of a, a political commentary on the era. And you saying, well, I think he's sort of being tongue in cheek, but what do you think he's being serious about when he says that? Yeah, I think that, well, I, what I hope is that readers, what they get from the book is that they appreciate uh, just how rich this film is uh, with subtexts and suggestions and that it encourages maybe even those who have seen the movie many, many times and have thought about all the different things that it could mean, that it gives those viewers new things to think about and consider um, as they watch the film. I hope that the book also um, helps people understand the Watergate scandal and early 1970s American politics and informs them in that way. And I think with both the film and the scandal, I'm hoping that readers can appreciate just how horrifying they were when they happened, you know, when they first came out. We all know that horror movies have gone in this direction where the, the violence and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre maybe won't impress a younger audience today. Who is? I'd go further than that. I'd say almost all the violence. I mean, it's all implied in Texas right, Chainsaw. Right. I mean, it was. I mean, you're you're right when you bring it up in the book. I mean, it's hysterical to think now, but Toby Hooper was in contact with the MPAA the whole mm -hmm. time, saying, "Well, I want to do this. How do I do this without getting a an R rating?" He wanted a PG, and I mean, right, it right. is a fairly bloodless film what, what's so bizarre about it is uh i still think it has as much power today as it did back then just because well i, I think given how traumatic the shoot itself was when you talk to the people that were involved with, in it like gunner hansen it was a traumatic shoot and i mean they were mm -hmm. shooting mm -hmm. on no budget so I, I think there was a lot of high tension because of that uh but also it's it's just you know the way you see the sort of sun setting over the uh the picture itself and the, the imagery is so raw that it has this staying power that makes it terrifying, even in light of all the comic aspects. Yes. And I, so that's one thing that I'm trying to encourage readers to appreciate is the effectiveness of this film and, and how the horror, especially for those audiences back then, I think you can still experience this today, but for those first audiences, just how uh, intense that was. And then also the Watergate scandal and Nixon. We've had so many things happen since then with presidents and American politics and other scandals that maybe make us think Watergate maybe wasn't such a big deal um, in retrospect, but I'm trying to also make that point on that side as well and get readers to appreciate just how horrifying all of that was and how unsettling it was and how the idea of the American democracy, you know, 
somehow crumbling and, and not surviving this crisis um, was all very real for people who lived during that period. So both those things I'm, I'm trying to, to get across to, to readers and hopefully they can appreciate and learn things about both, learn more things about the film and learn about the scandal as well. You know, it's interesting. I, I know you don't cover the, the sequels in the book, but I, I just wanted to mention this briefly. One thing that I find interesting about these Texas Chainsaw movies is that those first four films, the fourth one of which ends with Kim Henkel returning to actually direct, uh, mm -hmm. a, a basically a direct sequel to his original film. Those first four films in this franchise all have these darkly comical and satirical elements that I don't think people pick up on. Uh, and it's interesting because I think people really remember those. Maybe it's just nostalgia, but I look at what they've done since the remake. And one thing I don't see in anything they've done since that Texas Chainsaw remake is, you know, there, there isn't those darkly comical elements. They're, they're basically played uh, to be very, 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 very serious. So, you know, oh, this is just horrifying. And there's no darkly comical elements. Do you think the, the sort of satirical elements in uh, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, at least, and I would argue just personally, it's sequels. Do you, do you think in a way that has made it more frightening to people? Yeah, it's, it makes it, it I, I agree with you that, and that's true of other remakes and reboots and all the other, you know, all those movies that, that um, came out in the seventies and eighties that are being remade, all those horror films um, that the originals maybe contain that kind of, self-awareness or tongue-in-cheek aspect uh, that that often seems to fall out in in some of the remakes or maybe even in a lot of them um, and I mean for the original film for me it definitely adds to the horror of, of the film the, the sort of comic nature of this family and well because you have so these outrageous. wild tonal shifts at times like that one yeah. second you're terrified the other second you're like oh this is kind of am I supposed to laugh at this you know it's very it's disorienting the whole film is just disorienting yeah yeah and the actors are so good uh, the you know Edwin Neal and uh, Jim Seidel who play the hitchhiker and the cook they're so great with their you know their facial expressions changing from moment to moment and this very unsettling sort of feeling where we keep vacillating back and forth between uh levity and, and extreme horror um that it, it definitely adds to the 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 tension and then even in the final shots of the film where sally is you know traumatized sally seems to be laughing in a strange way uh, when she's in the back of that truck, like all of that, all of that unsettles us even more um, and is a testament to the the filmmakers and, and the actors and how they were able to sort of present a story in that way. And it's definitely something, you know, it's the idea that there's a joke and that we're not, you know, the characters aren't sure sort of what's going on and, or the viewer is maybe not sure what's going on. All of that can add uh added complexity to these films and make them much more interesting to go back and watch again and to look at in so great detail, such close analysis. That ending, by the way, always fascinated me where, you know, Sally has survived essentially, you know, and she's battered and bloodied and it seems like she is laughing when she escapes. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's interesting to me because, uh, I think it's a very cynical way to end the film is that I, I think you're supposed to get the impression, well, she may have survived, but 
she's broken. Um, right. You know, and, you know, it harkens back to what you said about, you know, Gerald Ford said our national nightmare is finally over, but wasn't really over. And in a way, I think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is saying, no, the nightmare isn't over. It's not over for Sally. And, you know, if you want to take the movie as, you know, having a metaphorical social commentary, the nightmare is not over for us either. Yeah. And there's the killer dancing with his chainsaw. He's still, he, you know, he, he's still on the loose at the end, um, just as Nixon was pardoned at the end and, and let loose. You know, the, there's this open-endedness, um, which, you know, Chainsaw does. And we have other, you know, there are other horror films that do that. Um, and that's unsettling as well when there's no resolution and it seems as though the, the, the killer is still loose or that the situation hasn't been resolved in a way to make us feel any more comfortable about things. Um, all of that uh, is, is very effective. And I was going to say, I, you know, the other, I should mention this just because my listeners are, are going to say it. They're going to say, you're saying that it's because the darkly comical elements, that's why it's better than the remake or blah, blah, blah. But in a way, it may just be that, I, I mean, it, Texas Chainsaw almost feels like a documentary. It's so raw and, yeah. and, you know, the grain on it, whereas now everything looks really slick. And I, I think that may attest to its power, too. Yeah, it's true. You know, we're, it's hard not to feel a little more detached and a little, little less sort of, you know, part of the world of what you're watching uh, when you have that gloss and the, you know, the, the, the slick nature and the higher budgets and, and so forth definitely um, plays a role there. Well, I want to thank you, Martin Harris. How can my listeners uh, keep up with your work or get a copy of Leatherface versus Tricky Dick, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is political satire? To get the book, you can go to Head Press. It's one word, uh, headpress.com. They're the publisher. Uh, it's also on Amazon and, and everywhere else. So if you just look up Leatherface versus Tricky Dick, you should find it um, easily enough. I have a Instagram, which I'm trying to you know, be diligent about, called Leatherface versus Tricky Dick. So that's easy enough to, to find. And I'm on Twitter. My handle over there is hardboiled poker, like hardboiled eggs, but hardboiled poker. And that goes back to my poker I mentioned before, uh, uh, poker connections. And so um, you can find me in those places and you can find my book at Head Press or Amazon or, or elsewhere. Well, thank you again, Martin Harris. Thanks so much. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Martin Harris about his book, Leatherface vs. Tricky Dick, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre as Political Satire. Many thanks to Head Press for getting me in touch with Martin. They're a really great independent publisher, and I suggest you check out the books they've been releasing as of late. Especially if, like me, you have a penchant for strange and unusual elements of popular culture, the fringes, so to speak, of pop culture. Also, as always, if you can, please consider supporting me if you appreciate the work here I do with Parallax Views. 
by contributing financially to the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Just released a new Patreon-exclusive edition of the show featuring blogger These Long Wars in the second part of our multi-part series on the covert history of George H.W. Bush and the Bush family dynasty. That's for $5 and above tier supporters. You can support me on Patreon at the $1, $5, $10, $15, or even $100 tiers. And if you support me at the $10 or above tiers, you will get a producer's credit shoutout. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Catherine, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, well, consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Your support is very, very much appreciated. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.